You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 43 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Podcast. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leaf Fan. Joining me, as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping? Uh, we're doing pretty good, Mike. Uh, I didn't even bother shoveling all that snow that's out there from, from, from yesterday and the day before, but um, <laughs> it's been kind of crazy. I mean, you go from shorts to snowsuit in one week. I mean, it's like crazy, but... I mean, that's April, May in Canada. I guess we can't expect uh, any different, really. Yep, that's very true. Well, today we have a very interesting guest joining us, probably one of the most decorated executives in NHL history, winning three cups with the Islanders and four with the Detroit Red Wings, Jimmy DeVolano. Oh, Jimmy, smart guy and uh, a wonderful person. Uh, I got to know Jimmy pretty good when I was doing Leafs TV. Uh, mm-hmm. in the in the 2000s and Jimmy used to sit right by where we did the broadcast uh, I believe I believe he was sitting there with his mother I believe he brought his mother yeah. to all the games and uh, so I'd see him at you know before we'd start the post game show and have a little chat with him and and so on so uh, I got to know Jimmy pretty good he, he was a pretty nice man well, we're going to have to ask him to see if he got to know you, would get to know you a little better earlier when you were still playing and if you ever made a trade for you. So we're going to have to ask that one, right, to get that out of him to see if he ever had designs on you at one point. Because you know he loved to mess with the Maple Leafs. So he loved oh, yeah. nothing better than probably prying you out of the Toronto area, that's for sure. <laughs> so we'll get that one out of him at some point. Now, speaking of our Maple Leafs, the lads are in a little bit of a funk, Squid. The team looks to shuttle. Mm-hmm. Goaltending's been weak the last few games. Now, here's a thought for you. Instead of beating on him, is it a coincidence the slide started right after the trade deadline and the new resources were on their way? Players may be gripping their sticks a little tighter, trying to stay in the lineup, trying not to make mistakes because everybody's watching and you got all these new players. And as I said, helps on the way. So I guess at this point, we got to look for a little change. Or is it? Oh, go ahead. I'm or is, it the, op- coming in or is it the opposite, though, Mike? Is it the fact that, okay, the deadline's over, I didn't get moved, I'm safe, well, you know, right. and all of a sudden, yeah. you know, you take your foot off the pedal a little bit. But yeah. I, I expect tonight tonight to be a lot different with Felino, I believe, in the lineup. Yeah. And uh, uh, who else? Uh, well, Hutton. He's going to play tonight, yeah. Play. Yeah, so... I think I think Nick Foligno is going to make a big difference. He's he's a Zach Hyman type player, uh, and with him out of the lineup, I think that hurts the team as well. So, uh, so I think Nick Foligno can pick up a little bit of the slack uh, from not having Zach. Sure looks good picking up Ben Hutton too with uh, Bogosian going down now for looks like a few weeks or maybe longer. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, when you got the other all into the boards, oh yeah, it's so it's I, I they kept it really quiet, but it's coming out now that he's gonna be out for it looks like at least a few weeks and maybe longer. Oh boy. So I guess the key at this point is to secure a playoff spot in the postseason. Home ice isn't gonna mean a whole heck of a lot. So I think you gotta put all that aside and just launch your best lineup of the year and see how the chips fall. And that's really what it's gonna come down to. Yeah, I mean I think 
you know what? They're pretty much securely in a in a, a playoff yeah. position. I'm I'm not I, I I'm pretty sure that's not going to change. I mean, they're yeah, going to get in. Um, and, and I think you're right. Like home ice doesn't really mean anything in Canada in the Canadian division when there's no fans in the building. I don't think it really does. Um, so, I mean, other than having the amenities of in your own building, uh, you know, the the nicer room. The, you know, the lounge off the room, the kitchen, whatever the heck they have, and the video access right away and so on. Other than that, I don't think it makes that much difference. No, I, I agree with you. And I guess now it'll be, they'll be taking, rethinking their thoughts on uh, Freddie Anderson, I guess, moving into the playoffs. But they'll keep him on that. They have to keep him on that list to make cap room, the LTIR list, at least probably until playoff time. But that's really all you really want him for. Same with... Uh, Riley Nash coming in, and hopefully by that time you get Zach coming back, and hopefully Bogosian's back by then also. So we'll definitely sit back and see it all develops. I expect a little better effort tonight coming out of these guys. Uh, so we'll see. And he'll, he'll Flamel should inject a little bit of energy into the lineup. Everybody should play a little bit better tonight. So we'll we'll look for that. Now, just while everybody's down, well, oh, go ahead. We should. They, they they should they better play better because these two games Winnipeg could be you know after these two games in Winnipeg they could be tied with Toronto and still have a game in hand exactly right so or maybe Toronto no they somebody gotta, has a game in hand Winnipeg does yeah now so, I mean you know these are two very very important games and again it's not that big a deal but home ice like I said. The, the ability to, to, to sleep in your own bed yeah. and to have the amenities alone probably is worth getting first place. Yeah, I, I, that, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. And, and, but, the, but to knock yourself out to get that, if it comes to playing a player too early to, to achieve that, I'd rather just sit him and wait and just take your chances elsewhere. You're going to have to win on a road eventually anyway, so let's see how it all plays out. So I would say just to give everybody a little bit of a good feel this today's squid. Now we're doing we're taping this on the Thursday and this course will be dropped to you guys on uh, Saturday, but on this day, April 24th in 1999, just to make everybody feel a little bit better, the Toronto Maple Leafs scored twice in the last two minutes of play. So it can be done, including the game winner by Matt Sundin at 1907 for 2-1 victory against the visiting Philadelphia Flyers in game two of the Eastern Conference quarterfinals. Now, one year later, on the same day, down two nothing. They're down two nothing this time. They they spotted them one the first time in game two the second time. They scored four straight in the second period for a four two win over Ottawa. And everybody will love this, eliminating the Senators from the playoffs in game six of the Eastern Conference quarterfinals. So there you go. But here's one on this day in 1969, and I think this will put a little bit of a puzzle on your face. Jean Bellabo scored his only career playoff overtime goal. I, I would never have thought that. And added an assist as Montreal beat Bruins for the 10th straight series between the two clubs going back to 1946 from 69 with a 2-1 win at Boston Garden, game six of the semifinals. I would never have thought one overtime goal for John Bellafoe. No, I, that is something that is baffling, really. It is... Uh... I mean, as good a player as he was, as long as he played, and how powerful Montreal was, I wow, yeah, that got me, Mike. I told you, <laughs> I knew that would. That got, but I read, I had to read that twice. I told Mike, 
goodness, like that is, I would never have guessed that in a million years. Well, I think, speaking of which, I think, uh, speaking of somebody who was back playing and uh, you know, working in the era, let's go and uh, hear and listen what uh, old Jimmy has to say. Well, Squid, our guest today can be best described as a hockey lifer. Starting at an early age as a fan, coach, scouted, and worked his way up to gym, but along the way was part of 15 championship teams, including seven Stanley Cups, three with the honors that a lot of people forget about, four with the Red Wings. He, like us, Squid, is a published author, and even dabbled in baseball with the Detroit Tigers, Michigan Hall of Famer, Hockey Hall of Famer. Well, we could go on all day about this guy, but I think you get the idea about this guy's stellar career. I'm referring to Jimmy Davilano. Jimmy, how are things in Sarasota, Florida? Well, beautiful weather, uh, about 81 degrees. Uh, uh, thank goodness for the Hockey Channel. I get to see a lot of NHL games and uh, watch my own team, of course, uh, Mike, the Red Wings, and... Uh, so I do get to see a lot of uh, television, but the weather's spectacular down here in Sarasota, Florida. Well, Jimmy, I want to uh, get the elephant out of the room right off the bat. So we don't, we, we don't want to beat around the bush in this one, but I have to know, we get the, the audience has to know right off the bat, did you at any time ever in your career try to trade for my co-host? <laughs> yeah, I did actually. <laughs> I didn't get too far. He was uh, a premier goal scorer for the Maple Leafs, and uh, they weren't going to send him down the road to Detroit. But uh, I had many a conversation regarding him. I actually don't know if Rick remembers, but when he was about 18, I can't remember where we were. We were in some hotel probably shouldn't say this, he was 18 and we were all in a bar. I was working, I think, for the Islanders at the time, and Rick was about to be baby bull. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, boy, that, that's a long time ago, but that's the first time I met Rick, he was 18, and uh, getting ready to uh, leave junior hockey to, to go to Birmingham as one of five or six young, good 18-year-olds that joined the Birmingham Bulls. Squid? Yeah, that was uh, that was a great experience going there as a 19-year-old. Uh, Actually, I was 18. Okay. Then turned 19, I think, before I ended up going there. And uh, it was a great experience. It was a great opportunity uh, playing against men uh, as opposed to boys in junior hockey. And, I mean, the year before, I had 76 goals in the Quebec League, and I thought, you know, I mean, what am I going to do? Go and score 100 goals? Is that going to make me a better player or go and play it against men? So I took the other route and, you know, it all paid off pretty well. So can't complain. Eric, it was the right thing to do because you're right. You had mastered the Quebec Major Junior League. And let's, let's talk about facts, too. I mean, you were probably getting about 60 bucks a week in junior and of course you know you signed probably for a fairly healthy amount of money at that time in those days so you know for a young kid to be able to play as you say in a pro league against men probably got you ready for the nhl rick absolutely uh, jimmy I, I can't i can't disagree with you there but actually my check my first year in junior was 19 dollars and one cent <laughs> and I think it went up to 20, 24 or 25 something in my, my second year. And uh, 
then I decided to go to Birmingham. I didn't, I didn't get a, a, a ton of money, but I got 20 to sign and 30 salary. Like you say, it was a lot more than what I was going to make in June. You know, it's funny, Rick, uh, not knowing I would have guessed about 50,000 bucks, which, you know, back then was a lot of money, especially, oh, yeah. especially when you're making 20 bucks a week. So made the right move. <laughs> you made the right move. Well, Jimmy, let's let's go back in time for you and let's see if you how good your memory is. You were testing, so let's test you. And you're a young guy growing up in the 50s. You went to your game Maple Leaf Gardens, your first game. You fell in love with the team. You quit school at an early age, worked as a claims adjuster, which probably came in handy doing with those pesky agents later on in your career. Started scouting on your own. Take us through that whole period and then and sort of then leading up to the position scouting with St. Louis for no money at that. And you actually went to the draft, as I understand it, and tried to hustle a job. Yeah, well, you know, I always loved hockey. You know, I can remember my dad. I was 12 years old, 1955, taking me to Maple Leaf Gardens, you know, to see the National Hockey League and uh, it, it, to me, it was like going to the Vatican. I mean, I know I'm quoting Brian Burke, but to go into Leaf Gardens, it, it, it just felt holy to me. I, I was in love with the place and in love with hockey. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't play hockey. I was a lousy hockey player. I figured it out pretty, pretty quick. I started to coach teams as a young guy, 18, 19, in the THL, and then a good thing happened. I caught a break. Uh, the break was that the NHL was going from six teams to 12. They were doubling in size. And if they don't double in size, there's no chance that I'm even in the NHL today, but they doubled in size. And to make a long story short, I offered the general manager of a new team, the St. Louis Blues, to scout Ontario free of charge. I had a full-time job in Toronto as a claims adjuster. And so I had my nights, weekends free. And all I did was go to hockey games. Within a year, they put me on full-time and actually started to pay me to, to go to hockey games. And I became a full-time scout. And uh, that's kind of how it happened. Uh, the, the, the general manager's name, was Lynn Patrick, and he was the guy that uh, took an unknown 24-year-old kid, took him at his word, took a chance on me, and I proved to him that I could spot talent, spot players. He took me on, and here I am 54 years later, still working in the National Hockey League. Well, Jimmy, how did you rank players in those days? Did you formulate your own system to evaluate them? or just take us through what you did to sort of signify a player had ability. Well, at that time, Mike, I was only in charge of Ontario. And back in 67, we, we weren't going to Europe. We weren't even going into the U.S. So my job as Ontario scout, basically for the St. Louis Blues, was to cover really the 14 major junior teams. That's there were back then, and two of them, of course, played right out of out, out of Toronto. Uh, St. Michael's Majors, Toronto Marlboros, of course, you had the Oshawa Generals down the street, street, 
Biltimore's Peterborough. And so I would go, and at that time, and Rick will know this, it was a 20-year-old draft. That's why Rick went to the WHA. They, they got in, they beat the NHL to the punch and signed 18-year-old kids. So I was looking basically at last year juniors. And uh, look, at we were an expansion team. We were looking for talent. Let's not kid one another. And so I was looking for guys that could play. Could they score? Were they big enough? Did they have a big heart? Did they have desire? Those kinds of things. And uh, that, that, that was basically it. Of course, since that time, 1967, Mike, the whole landscape of scouting, it's now worldwide. It's now an 18-year-old draft. So very, very different from when I started. Scrib. So Jimmy, back in those days, I, get, I mean, I, I get it, and I, and I, but I hear it all the time at the draft where, you know, general managers or whatever say, we're going to take the best player available. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, especially looking at the Islander days when you were with the Islanders after St. Louis, when you got to a certain point, building that team and you were you were a pretty darn good team i mean did you still look at it that way that we're going to take the best player available or are we gonna or we need a right winger or we need a left winger like how did you look at it and, and a, you know because nowadays is skill speed and they always say we're going to take the best player available i i don't agree with that i think when you get to a certain point where you're you're almost there you got to fill those holes that you need to well, Rick, you know, uh, it, it, the problem you have is it's an 18-year-old draft. So you're drafting kids that have two years of junior to go. So, Rick, in all fairness, you're projecting, okay? Because a kid at 18, you got to try to figure out what he's going to be at 21, 22. So, Rick, when we started the Islanders, uh, we'd got rated pretty good. We came in the same year as the WHA, and, and we got really hammered. The WHA took eight of our 20 draft picks, so we were just a really a bad team. Now, at that time, there was no draft lottery, and we caught a break by being bad, and you'll know what the break was. Yep. It was Dennis Potvin, okay, and Rick, you know, he was a stud on defense for 15 years, so that got us started. Now, we continued because we needed help, Rick, in every area uh, by drafting best player available. Up until about seven years in, uh, we had a decision to make. We had the 15th pick in the draft in 1977. And while this will sound crazy today, it wasn't back then. We had to consider two players. There was a player that led the Ontario Hockey League in scoring by the name of Dwight Foster. He played for the Kitchener Rangers. Uh, he led the league in scoring. He was a good 200-foot player. Pretty damn good all-around player. Over into the Quebec League, 
you had a guy who, like you, Rick, did nothing but score goals in the Quebec League. His name was Mike Bossy. Okay, now, <laughs> it's easy to look today and say, uh, how, would, uh, how, how would you even bring Dwight Foster up at the same breath? But back then, they were in the same breath, and we had a decision to make. And I'll tell you how we made the decision. Even though it was my decision as head scout, I described to Bill Torrier, manager, and Al Arbor coach, what Mike Bossy was. I also described to Al Arbor and Bill Torrey what Mike Bossy was. Mike Bossy was a pure goal scorer who didn't uh, bother with fisticuffs and really didn't do a whole lot of checking. He just put the puck in the net. Uh, so Al Arbor said, is he scared? I said, I don't think so. He said, you know, Jimmy, we got Brian Trache. We got a tough guy in Clark Gillies on the left side. I can teach anybody how to check. I can teach checking. I can't teach goal scoring. Why don't we, why don't we take the goal scorer, Rick? We took Bossy. The rest was history with Potvin, Trache, Trache, Bossy, Stanley Cups were backing uh, down the road for sure. Well, I got a funny story for you on Mike Boston. So I played against him, obviously, that, that year. And we couldn't stop him. He scored two or three goals every time we played him. Right. I go back to PEI in the summer, and we're, I'm sitting in a bar with a bunch of my buddies. And uh, some of the boys from the country came in, and they were at the next table. And one of them was an Islanders fan. And he was yapping and complaining. They knew who I was, and they were complaining about how the Islanders could take a French guy and all this stuff. I said, listen, hey, dude, I said, if he stays healthy, play, he'll, he'll likely play with, with uh, uh, Troche. I said, he's going to score 50 goals as a, as a rookie if he stays healthy. Well, sure enough, he did it, what, nine years in a row from the beginning of his career? Rick, it, it, I'll tell you a funny story in lines with what you're saying. So Bill Trump and I now have to sign Mike Boss, the rookie. And he's a confident kid. I wouldn't say he was cocky, but he was confident. He knew he knew he, he could score goals. Now, it's one thing, Rick, to score in the Quebec Major Junior League. As you know, it's another thing to do it at the National Hockey League level. So we're, we're doing a contract with him, and we're... We're settling the terms of it. We've got the, the money all down. And uh, then Bossy says to Bill Torrey, he said, uh, uh, Bill, uh, 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 we gave him uh, so much if he got 20 goals, so much if he got 25, and, and we stopped at 30, okay? We stopped at 30. He's 18 years old. So Mike said, why are we stopping at 30, Bill? Uh, uh, why don't we 35, 40, 45, 50? Bill said, Mike, do you really think you're going to score 50 goals? He said, yeah, I do. So we gave him the bonuses with no trouble, never dreaming. And, of course, the first year, 
to your point, he came in, I think he got 53. His career, because yeah. he had a bad back year, bang on, nine years, always over 50, and a few years over 60. He was a beautiful scorer. We caught a break. It was a good pick for us. Now, Jimmy, you just touched on the one guy who was kind of the architect behind all those guys in Al Arbor. Is it true that you were instrumental in him going to the island in the first place and becoming the coach? And if so, what did you see in him out of St. Louis? You may have saw him as Leaf also, but what did you see out of him as a person that you thought he could do the job for the Islanders? Yeah, well, okay, it's a long story. Uh, the first time I laid eyes on Al Arbor, he was a noticeable guy because he wore glasses. People don't wear glasses and play hockey, especially defensemen that are that block shots. But uh, Al bounced from team to team in the original six. He wasn't a highly skilled guy, but he 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 played very very hard. He was good defensively. Okay, and then when expansion came, like me, he got an opportunity to extend his NHL career by going to St. Louis. Uh, he became the first captain of the St. Louis Blues. That tells you a lot about him. Uh, he became the first captain. Scotty Bowman was very, very high on him, really relied on him to keep the team together, especially the younger players, the Barkley Plagers, the Bob Plagers, the Timmy Ecclestones. Scotty really relied on Al's uh, ability to, to keep the team together. Uh, early on, when Scotty stepped down from coaching in St. Louis, he, 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 he put Al in behind the bench. To make a long story short, uh, there was a lot of owner interference by our third and fourth year in St. Louis. Uh, Scotty Bowman was not getting along with the owners and, uh, and had to remove Al. I thought it was unfair. Uh, Scotty, I know, thought it was unfair, and I got to really know him kind of as a person, and uh, I'll never forget, uh, give you the whole story. Uh, uh, after year one, we needed a new coach uh, on Long Island, and Bill Torrey had two pretty good names of gentlemen that I liked. One was Johnny Wilson, a former player who had coached in Detroit before, the other was a Maple Leaf coach, uh, uh, Johnny McClellan. And those were two people that I knew and I respected and liked. But I said, Bill, I've got another guy that I have strong feelings about. I was with him in St. Louis. My gut tells me he would be an ideal guy for a building team. He played for all kinds of coaches throughout his career. He's a smart enough guy to take the best of each coach he played with and forget about the worst thing that each coach might have had. So Bill interviewed him. He hired him. And again, just like Bossy, the rest is history. He lasted for a long, long time. Well, after three cups, all of a sudden you get a call from, uh, you know, you've moved up the ranks. Director of scouting, everything's working well. You get a call from a guy by the name of Mike Illich. How did that all take place and what was the pitch coming from him? Yeah, very simple. So we'd won our third Stanley Cup. I had been involved in putting the Islanders together along with our scouts and Bill Torrey. And uh, 
In, in uh, 1982, a guy by the name of Bruce Norris was selling the Detroit Red Wings. It had been in the Norris family, Mike, as you probably know. Yes. 50 years. Uh, I didn't know who Mike Illich was, but he was introduced to me as the founder and the operator of a pizza company called Little Caesars, now with 5,000 stores worldwide. When I met Mike back in 82, he had 300 stores. But anyways, uh, uh, he, he called me and said, Jimmy, I know you've been the number two man on Long Island. You're just coming off of three Stanley Cups. I need a guy like you that knows how to hire scouts, that knows how to teach scouts, that knows how to draft well. Uh, and uh, so he offered me the job, Mike. Uh, he offered me the job. And uh, so in 1982, I went to Detroit. Now, I knew what I was getting myself into, and that was, quite frankly, the team was in the Detroit River. It had been a bad, bad team for a long time. Missed the playoffs 14 out of 16 years, okay, in a league where 16 out of 21 got in. So that was the type of team I was taking over, and I had to sell ownership, the media, the players, the fans on Hey, I know you've been suffering a long time, but there's going to be a little bit more heartache here as we build. This thing is not going to be built overnight. I'll keep going here, Mike, because yeah. talk about rebuilding. I got well, to be. Can I stop you for one sec? Because what I want you to get into is your mental approach coming from an expansion team as the Islanders building them to Stanley Cup champs. Now you're going to an original six team in a rebuild. With a decade of his decades of history, an impatient fan base, as you pointed out, and an anxious owner who's been very successful in business, so isn't used to failure. How does that approach? I mean, pick it up from there. Well, I'm going to tell you how that worked out. And nobody liked it when I came in, either the owner or the media. And I said, this thing is, is, is not going to happen overnight. We need to treat the Detroit Red Wings like an expansion team. We really do. Mike, when I walked in there, Rick, when I walked in there, we had about five, five hockey players. You know who they were. Danny Gare, John O'Grodnick, uh, Greg Steffen. I, I don't even know if I can get to five, okay? So it had to be treated as an expansion team. So I get there and my first year, I missed the playoffs again, more agony. But, but just like the Islanders, I had the fourth pick in the draft. And we got lucky. Oh boy, did we get lucky. We got Steve Eiserman, okay, at fourth in the draft. And that gave us a true superstar with it, with which to build around. And he was sort of the start of the rebuild of the Detroit Red Wings. Squid? Yes. Uh, it's too bad you hadn't come to Toronto right around that time, Jimmy, <laughs> and, and build around a couple of us that, that, that we had in Toronto because the, the other guys. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it would have been nice to have a guy like you that could build that, that franchise up from – 
you know, the three or four good players that we really, that we had back then. And yeah. uh, like you did in Detroit. Well, Rick, I, I appreciate that. That's really nice of you to say that in a compliment. Uh, actually, you know, uh, I, I knew Mr. Ballard very, very well for other reasons. I liked Harold very much socially, very much. Had a lot of uh, good times with Harold away from the rink, but I, I wouldn't go there, Rick, for two reasons. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, Harold wouldn't give me the freedom that I would need to operate. The other problem, Rick, was, and still is to this day, people aren't going to like this, Boy, it's tough with the media there. It is so competitive, media-wise, trying to satisfy the 50 people every day that want, wants a piece of your hide. Detroit was a little bit easier, Rick. So, but I appreciate the compliment, and, uh, and that's why I stayed where I was. <laughs> your, um, your approach, though, Jimmy, back in that time in that Norris division, if you're really realistic, you've actually mentioned this to me in the past, that you had to beat one team to get in the playoffs. So your goal, your eye was on one team four hours north of you across the border. And if you could beat them, success would follow. Well, you know what, Mike? That's exactly right. You know, when I was offered the job in Detroit, I knew what I was taking over, okay? I knew it was bad. But I looked at the division. It was called the Norris Division of all divisions he was selling. And it was a five-team division, Mike, and four made the playoffs. Four made it. So I said, surely, the goodness, Jimmy, within a year or two, you can pass one team. So I targeted Toronto. So the first year I got there, Toronto, Rick, your team beat I don't know if you were there in 82, 83, but if you were, you beat us. Yep. You, you picked up two kids at the deadline from Montreal, uh, uh, Dan Dau and uh, uh, another defenseman, I can't remember, but it improved your club going down the stretch and you passed us and made the playoffs the first year. But by year two, uh, I was able to pass Toronto, Rick, because of Iserman's presence. He now came in. Who would think that an 18-year-old would come in and score 39 goals? I picked up Brad Park from Boston as an unrestricted free agent. He was playing on one leg, but he was better than most guys on two, to tell you the truth. I, I made a deal with the Rangers to pick up Ron Duguay. So we were able to make the, the playoffs some back-to-back seasons. And that, that allowed me, Mike, a little bit more time with which to build the team that eventually we would have in the 90s. Well, I think by this time, Jimmy, you're, you've probably come to the realization that your owner, not only impatient, this guy wants to win and he wants to win yesterday. So you were always, which is good in a way because it keeps you on your toes, always looking for the, to think outside the rink. And I think yes. you were really good at doing that as we see over the years. And one of the things you did, and I love this story, and I, I hope you'll tell it to us here, is when you expanded your sites to the college levels and you went to have your meeting with Mr. Illich, told him about that, and then the results of what came of that kind of surprised you about his reaction. 
Yes. Well, it was year three of my regime. We had made the playoffs in back-to-back seasons, but again, beaten out one team, okay? So we were no health, so to speak, but we were better, okay? And we got taken out pretty badly in the first round by Chicago. Embarrassingly bad, four straight, and all big scores. Mike Illich was not a happy camper, to put it mildly. So he came to visit me after the season, and he said to me, Jimmy, we've been here three years. I appreciate the fact that we've made the playoffs the last two years. That's progress. We're starting to put people in the building. That's progress. But can't we push this thing along? And I said, well, what would you suggest? I thought I would listen and listen to what the owner had to say. He said, Jimmy, aren't there some kids in college, U.S. colleges? Aren't there some kids that can play? I said, yeah, there are a few. Now, you got to remember, this is 1985, okay? So there were just a few. He said, well, why don't we sign some of them? You know, why don't we sign some U.S. college free agents? I said, Mike can I get back in a couple of hours? Let me sit down with my U.S. scouting staff and get a list so I can present something to you so you'll understand what we're getting into. Fine. So I meet with them the next morning, and I have a list. I went to my U.S. scouts, and I said, now look, uh, Mr. Illich wants to sign some Uh, kids out of college, it doesn't cost you anything in terms of draft picks. You're not trading for them. He's prepared to spend some money. I think we should do it. It it sounds like a reasonable request to me. But I said, don't come to me with 15 or 20 names of college players. I only want guys that you think have a chance a chance to become an NHL player. So they put their heads together. They had seen all the Division I colleges, and they gave me a list of six names. Okay? So I've got six names. The number one name on the list, our scouts had it right, was Adam Oates. So we'll start off with who was the top of the six. Of course, he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame today. So we had that right. None of these kids had ever been drafted, Mike, including Adam Oates, right out of Markham, Ontario. Okay, so I went and had a coffee with our owner, and I said, Mike, there are six players that our scouts feel have a chance to become NHL players, but they really are high on the top guy, Adam Oates. After that, there's a fall-off but they really feel that they might have an outside chance of making it. He said, I want them all signed. Get to work in them all. I just about had a heart attack, Rick. I had a heart attack. I said, Mr. Illich, like, you know, he's a pizza guy. He doesn't understand the hockey business. I said, Mike, I, I, I called him Mike. Mike, I said, there's 21 teams in the, in the, in the bloody league. There are 21 teams. Do you think we're the only team that's going to bid on these players? doesn't matter. Just go sign them, give them whatever they want. 
Give them whatever they want. Make a long story short, we signed five of them. I was under such pressure. I signed five. Guess what? He was he was mad at me because I, I lost this to Pittsburgh. Well, tell the, a, tell the Burke story with uh, Stasek. Well, That's the, the best one. Yeah, well, the second guy on our list was a, a young boy out of Philadelphia. Real nice kid, I remember. A hard-nosed kid. Played at uh, uh, Illinois, Chicago. His name was Ray Stasek. And this is 1980. And I, 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 he's number two on our list, so we go after him. Uh, but I had some doubts about whether he skated well enough to play, but our scouts liked him. He was on our list, so uh, I, 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 I went after him. And uh, so I said, well, who represents you? He said, well, it's uh, an attorney by the name of Brian Burke. I had just started to hear about this guy, Brian Burke. I just started to hear about him. He was hooked up with another guy, another attorney out of Detroit, Bob Goodenow. Everybody certainly remembers that. They were hooked up. They were a partnership, and he represented Ray Stasak. So Berkey is only Brian Burke could and would do. Uh, he started to take this kid to all 21 teams, literally, to meet the manager. He took, took this kid on a tour of the National Hockey League and sold him, sold the managers and the owners on a bill of goods that he would be the next Bob Probert. Well, there's one thing I knew, he wasn't going to be Bob Probert, that's for sure. How the hell would you find a Probert in U.S. college hockey? Come on, they don't even... <laughs> Okay, so anyways, I'm negotiating with Burke, and like, he's over a million dollars for five years. Rick, in 1985, if somebody said a million dollars for five years, only the superstars in the NHL were getting this, not some kid out of Philadelphia that played at Illinois, Chicago. But Burke... He, Jimmy, he took, in 1985... Jimmy, in 1985, I wasn't even making that much. It doesn't surprise me. So that's how out of whack it was, Rick. That's how out of whack. So finally, I'd had enough of Brian Burke, okay? I'd had enough. And so I called my village because, you know, I had orders uh, to sign all six. So I said, Mike, look, I'm stuck at number two. I got oats done. I've got the other kids close to being done. I cannot sign stays like, well, why not? Well, because it's a way too much money. You're, you're, you, it's not right, Mike. I can't look you and, and Marion Illich in the eye. It, it, it's too much money. Well, who, who's representing him? I said, Brian Burke. He said, well, who the hell is he? I said, he's an American out of Providence, Rhode Island. He said, well, Jimmy, can I take over that negotiation? I thought, uh-oh, uh-oh. I said, yeah, you can take it over. I knew what that meant, Rick. He was going to sign him. He was going to give him the money. He's gonna, I wouldn't do it, I'll tell you that. He was going to give him the money. So he meets with Burke. He didn't know who Burke was. Burke 
does a masterful selling job on Mike Gill. We sign a million to for five years. The sad part is Rick, he played one NHL game, made a million to five. Nice kid though. I do like the kid, but uh, that's what happened. That's what happened. Well, when the owner gets involved, that's what happens. So tell us. Yeah, about- there's a little confusion. Mike, there's a little conclusion. You might remember this. Uh-huh. So Mike Illich knows now, two years later, that it's an awful mistake. Okay, he knows it. Yeah. Okay, and he knows who made the mistake. Okay. Every time we'd be now, Burke would now be a manager now. By this time, he's a manager. So he's in owners' meetings. I'm there with Mike Gillich. And every time he'd see Brian, even to this day, 30 years later, he'd say, You're the guy that cost me over a million dollars with your. <laughs> and even to this day, Mike keep rem- keeps reminding him. Berkey and I get a good laugh out of it, of course, but that's. That's a long time ago, but that's what happened. And and you know what? To Mike Illich's credit, to his credit, guys, that's how badly he wanted to win. That's how badly he wanted to win. Well, Jimmy, take it to Jimmy, the next I wonder. I'll oh, go ahead. Hold it, Jimmy. I wonder if you could uh, clear <laughs> something up for me because I was told uh, that John O'Grodnick did not have a bonus in his contract for for fifty goals. And the year he scored 50 goals, Mike Gillis wrote him a check for $50,000 uh, for scoring 50 goals, even though he didn't have a bonus. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I'll give you a couple of stories like that. And uh, that's Rick, what made our franchise. This is why guys wanted to come to Detroit, okay? Uh, it's, a good, it's, it's a good thing that you're bringing up. So I'll start out. Uh, uh, with O'Grodnick. So we, we, we missed the playoffs the first year. Uh, he, gets, he gets 51 goals. And unbeknownst to me, like 50 grand was a lot of money. You know that, Rick, back in 1982. And you know, it, it was a lot of money, okay? So, and the team's losing money. We were not sold out. We're losing money. But when O'Grodnick got 50 goals, he walked into the dressing room, true story, didn't tell the coach, didn't tell me, which didn't matter. And in front of the team, he gave John O'Grodnick a check for 50 grand, slapped him on the back, thank you for 50 goals. Now, there was a message there from the owners to the players. There was a message there. The message was, Perform at a high level, Rick. Perform at a high level, and I will look after you. So next year, Rick, just to follow on that story, Steve Eiserman comes in as a rookie. And I had done his first contract with, with uh, uh, Gus Spadali. You might remember the name. Gus had been mm-hmm. a agent the time and I did Steve's rookie contract with Gus and we both made a mistake admittedly we had a bonus in there 25 grand if he was the rookie of the year Calder Cup that's hard to do you know I don't need to tell you only one rookie 
ever wins it. So we put in a bonus, 25 grand. I mean, he was only making 60,000 the first year. So <laughs> we put this bonus in, but here's where we, we, we weren't on the ball, both Gus and I. We should have had a bonus in there, second for rookie of the year, 20 grand, third, 50, fourth, 10, because there's always four or five good records. We should have protected the kid a little bit. We didn't. One bonus, 25 grand. True story. Eisenman gets 39 goals, and he can't win the rookie of the year award. He finishes second. Do you know who got it? The fifth guy. Tom Barrasso of the Buffalo Sabres. Hard to believe. He, he beat Steve out. I mean, here was a kid that come out of high school, Rick, a goalie. Uh, taken yeah. five. They were nuts when they took a goalie out of high school. But he went right to the National League and he won it. So, so I went to Mike Gillich. I went to Mike because I saw what he had done with John O'Brien. I said, Mike, I said, I'd like to throw something by you. He said, what's that? I said, you know, I said, the agent myself, we didn't protect Dyserman properly with his, his rookie of the year bonus. He said, well, explain it to me. I said, well, we gave him, we gave him one bonus for 25 grand. If you won the Calder Trophy as the rookie of the year, but you, we should have looked after him a little bit less for two, a little less for three, four. We didn't do that. And, and he said, well, what did you promise him if he had won it? 25 grand. He said, I'll look after it. Opening night the next year, opening night, right before the season, he asks our coach at that time, Nick Barano, can you give me three minutes? Just give me three minutes. Nick says, sure, Mr. O's fine. He walks in in front of the team. And of course, when the owner walks in, the players get quiet. They're sitting in their bench. Eiserman puts his arm around him and says, you're my rookie of the year. Here's 25 grand. Okay. So Eiserman, see, there was a message there. This was the smartness of Mike Gillich. Okay. Guys wanted to come now. They knew he was going to treat them well. I can remember, and I know I'm going on and on here, that in 86, when we went to the final four, Rick, we went to the, we won two playoff rounds. The players' bonuses were 16 grand from the league for winning two rounds. Mm -hmm. had a party after we won two rounds. To us, it was like winning the Stanley Cup. I won't lie to you. Winning two playoff rounds, holy cow. We won two rounds. He has a party at his house. As the players come in, he hands them each an envelope. You'll never guess what was in each envelope. $16,000. He matched the league bonus for every player. Now, that's a party, Rick. That's a party. Well, <laughs> you know what well, I mean? Now, now, Jimmy, now you got me really mad that you didn't get me to Detroit because I would have made a lot more money. <laughs> you, you probably left a half a million bucks on the table, Rick. I'm sorry to tell you that. But, you know, that's all part of it. And, and those were the things that Mike Illich did that, that really helped us, okay, when we went after Paul when we went after Luke Robitaille, when we went after Dominic Hasek, when we went after Brendan Shanahan, they had heard the stories. They well, Jimmy, before that, 
Uh, let's get into what really turned the team around, bringing in Scotty Bowman uh, in those later in the mid nineties and the Russian five story. I mean, it's a terrific story, great book, great documentary, but it all started the drafting of something that was done outside the rink again by you with Sergei Fedorov. Walk us through that. Yeah, well, okay. So I, I'm getting into year two and three in Detroit. Not everybody's got a lot of patience. The rebuild isn't going as fast as other people would like it, Nick. Mike, and I had to try to, you know, see if there was some way we could get better. And I was getting a little bit frustrated, guys, with getting into the third, fourth, and fifth rounds. And what I was getting out of the draft was American Hockey League players. I wasn't calling uh, NHL players in the third, fourth, and fifth rounds. And I said, this is going to take forever to build at the rate we're going. So my chief scout at the time was Neil Smith. And I just brought a young scout on board who had played golf for me in the minors, Ken Holland, somebody that you all know. Yes. And they would go to these tournaments in Europe. They would go to the tournaments. And when they would come back, I would always say to them, Neil, Kenny, who's the best 18-year-old in the world? Who's the best 18-year-old? And they would throw out names like Pavel Bure, uh, Sergei Fedorov. And I'd say, well, where, where, where do they play? They, uh, Russia. I said, are they the best 18-year-olds in the world? Yeah, they are. But they said, Jim, we got to forget about them because you can't get them. There's an iron curtain. You can't get them out of Russia. They're there. Okay. So this went on for about a couple of years. And I was starting to get annoyed. I was starting to get agitated. I'm drafting in the third, fourth, fifth round, Rick. And I'm drafting really for the Adirondack Red Wings. Let's make no bones about it. It's still that way today. So in 1989, I thought I would kind of shake the league up. I thought I'd shake my scouts up. I always let the scouts make the picks as Bill Torrey let me make the picks on the island. But when we got to the fourth round in 1989 in Minneapolis, the home of the North Stars at the draft, I said, Neil, Ken, I want to apologize, but this pick is mine. Fourth round. They looked at me and they said, well, you never do that. I said, I'm going to take a guy that you told me is the best 18-year-old player in the world. Fedorov. Yeah, but Jimmy, you're going to waste a pick. You're going to waste a pick. I went to the microphone. Detroit drafts from Fred Red Army won Sergei Fedorov. First time a Russian had ever been drafted anywhere that high. There were giggles and hush throughout the building. Some thought I'd lost my marbles. Others kind of thought what a waste of a pick. Well, we, we now know in hindsight that two years later, Mike, 
Sergei Fedorov was in our lineup. We'd already got lucky in the third round that year, and I mean lucky, by drafting Nicholas Lidstrom. So imagine getting Nicholas Lidstrom out of Sweden in the third round, and I'm the first one to look you guys in the eye and say we were lucky, because if we'd known how good he was, we'd have taken him in the first round. So let's not BS anymore. Okay, Rick, I'm not BSing anymore. And then I take Fedorov, then two years, they're in, the, in our lineup, and now we've got Iserman on top of it. I knew, Mike, we were on our way. We had three superstars, three. But, Jimmy, let me stop you for one second. On the Fedorov, your philosophy, though, is what actually intrigued me. And I, I'll, just, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just sort of throw this at you yeah. and remind you. Your philosophy was this kid's 18. He's the best 18-year-old in the world. Even if we have to wait five years or six years, eight years before we sort this all out with the National Hockey League and the Russia and trading players, he's still going to be 25, 26 and an elite player. Well, funny you say that. And thanks for bringing that up because you know the story, Mike. So uh, after the draft, I called my owner to give him a rundown of how I thought the draft went. I, I said to him, I said, Mike, I said, I got good news for you and some bad news. He said, well, give me the good news first. He said, <laughs> I like good news. I don't like bad news. But the good news is I drafted the best 18-year-old player in the world, the best. And he said, oh, that must be our first-round pick, Mike Sillinger. No, 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 I got him in the fourth round. Well, who the hell would you, how would you get the best 18-year-old player in the fourth round? I said, he's a Russian. He's behind the iron curtain. Oh, I said, look, Mike, you, you may fire me down the road, but if you get him 10 years from now, he'll be 28. If you, if, if you get him 10 years from now, he'll be right in his prime. I just got you the best 18-year-old in the world. And Mike, you know, we got him to defect. We did a lot of different things. We pulled him out of the country illegally, got him to defect, and now you got Iserman. Now you got Fedorov. Rick knows. I mean, imagine Rick down the middle, Iserman and Fedorov with Lidstrom on fence. You know, we we were on our way. We were on our way. Well, it's oh, funny. Uh, you, oh, sorry. It's Go funny ahead. you mentioned Fedorov because when I was in Buffalo, we got McGilney out of Russia. Sure. Imagine that line. Fedorov, McGilney, and Burring were aligned with the Russian junior team in Alaska, I believe. Well, that's, that's where Cam and, and Neil saw them. That's, you're right, Rick. That's where they saw yeah. them. And they said all three of them could just come in and uh, it would be wow. unbelievable. Just unbelievable. So, well, let me tell well, the I've story. Been asked, oh, well, I've been asked many times who the best player I've ever played with or against. And I always say, all around the best player I've ever seen or played with or against was McGillman. I mean, this guy could do things that yes, he could. other guys couldn't do. It was um, unbelievable. Sure. Well, Jimmy, tell the story before you go further that a lot of listeners won't know how you almost, how you got, I know this is a soft spot with you with this one and Pat Quinn, how you almost got Burray the next year and got screwed out of him. 
Yeah, we did get screwed there, Rick and Mike on Pavel Burry. So we're in the mid-rounds the next year. Now, I had already taken a Russian in the third round the next year. I got brave. I took Slava Kozla, who worked out terrifically well. He was a superstar, but he was an above-average player. So I had already dipped in. But around about the fifth round, teams were still scared. The Iron Curtain was still up, guys. So our European scout, Christopher Rockstrom at the time, came to us and said, you know, we should take Pavel Burry. Now, I'd heard all about Burry from Kenny Hall and Neil, as Rick talked about. And, and, I, and so... Neil said, well, he's ineligible. He's, he's ineligible. He's not on the list. And our scout from Europe insisted that he had played 10 games for some team in Siberia. He insisted on it. And I, so we checked at that time with the, the league lawyer right on the draft floor, Gilstein. You can't take him. You can't take him. If you take him, it's a wasted draft choice. So I said, well, it's kind of stupid guys to take them if the, if the league are telling you you're going to waste a, a pick. So we didn't take them. And I think Vancouver did, Mike, as it turns out. And they had the same information we had. Okay. And 30 years later, I'm still pissed off at Gil's. <laughs> <laughs> the Red Wings, Wings could have added Rick Pavel Burry to the we already wow. probably cost us another Stanley Cup. <laughs> that, 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 that's, how, that's how good they were, Rick, and you played with them and against them. You know how good they were. No, they were, I mean, they were unbelievable. Like I say, McGillney, uh, well, Burray and Federoff were great players, but I got the chance to play with McGillney, so I know yeah. how good he was. And if those guys were anywhere close to him, then all three of them were fantastic players. There's no question. What I mean, they That's were they were franchise players, is what they were. That's what they were. I mean, yeah. yeah. You know, I've always said, Rick. Part of my philosophy is I've always said this. I've said it to Mike in a lot of our casual conversations. <laughs> Going to win a Stanley Cup, you really need three superstars. You really do a center. Yeah a defenseman and I don't care who the other guy is he can be a winger if he gets 50 60 goals but if you get three superstars like you're on your way and uh, uh, you know and we had those by doing that so it was terrific well Jimmy talk about uh, bringing in Scotty Bowman and then the switch to the Russian five and how that all evolved and that led into the dynasty, if you want to call it. Yeah. Well, it, it, uh, it, 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 it's a bit complicated. Uh, uh, Mike Ellich had made a decision, Mike and Rick, that he felt we needed a new coach. At the, at the time, a uh, gentleman, and he was a gentleman, Brian Murray was coaching our team. We could score, but we didn't check. Team shut us down in the playoffs. Our, our focus as a team was very offensive, and 
come playoff time, you know how they a good goalie, they 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 shut you down. And we we got upset a few times when we thought we should have won. And Mike Illich was bound and determined to make a coaching change to try to get us over the hump. And the gentleman that he wanted, I did not want. So there was a general manager and me and an owner that was in dispute. He wanted to bring in Mike Keenan. I won't go into Mike. It was, it was <laughs> There's somebody. that name again, Squid. <laughs> no, but it was somebody I, uh, boy, and I'm just being candid here. Uh, I didn't want him, okay? But it, it's a problem when the owner wants somebody. I mean, he owns the team. I don't own the team. But I felt strongly enough about it that I sat down with the owner and his wife and I made a case, okay, as to why we should not hire Mike Keenum, okay? He still wasn't very pleased with me, Mike Illich, because that's who he wanted. And he said, look, Jimmy, we've got to get a guy that can drive this team to play two-way hockey to get over the hump. We've got a good team here. He said, what do you want me to do? I said, I'll tell you what I want you to do, Mike. I want to go out and hire one of two people, Al Arbor or Scotty Bowman. And he went quiet and he looked at me and he said, go get one of them. <laughs> get one of them. Just as he told me, sign all the college free aid. <laughs> And when he says it, it's an order, okay, go get one of them. So I read by that, that if I delivered either Al Arbor or Scotty Bowman, Mike Keenan would go bye-bye. If I didn't deliver one of those two, Mike Keenan was going to come in and coach the Detroit Red Wings. I got Scotty Bowman. The rest was history. Of course, the Russian five, we made some deals to get two older Russians that really helped Igor Larionov, Slava Fatisov. But you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Rick and Mike, and I think I've told you this, Mike. We still lacked, even with all those stars, we needed one more power forward. We needed a big, strong kind of power forward. We made a deal with Hartford early in 97, to acquire a guy by the name of Brendan Shanahan. And he came in, he was the last piece, and we would win back to back in 97, 98. Brendan uh, was a wonderful compliment to Iserman, Rick, especially on the power plays you could appreciate, was a power forward. And, and you know what? He could put the Dukes up if he needed to, to sweep the flies off of Iserman as well. So. It was a good pick. Great. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I just I want to go back just to mention a guy that you talked about a little earlier, Nick Plano, who was your coach when you came in there. Uh, he ended up being the assistant general manager in Calgary when I was coaching St. John, their farm team. Okay. And I got to tell you, he was a pretty difficult guy to put, to work for. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. he wanted. Rick, he wanted <laughs> he wanted uh, faxes every night after a game with every single player rated. And why didn't this young guy play? Why didn't this? Well, back then in the American League, 
the coaches, you could dress 18 and two if the coaches agreed or 17 and two, but normally 16 and two, which I thought was pretty crazy. I mean, you want these guys playing, these young players. Sure. And every time we played uh, Michelle Therrien's team in Fredericton, he dressed 16 and two, so I had no choice. And yeah. uh, Nick would call me the next day and say, you know, what the hell, why wasn't he playing? Why wasn't he playing? I said, well, I can't play them all. Because we're every time we play Fredericton, we only he won't play any more than sixteen and two. Rick, uh, uh, Nick, Nick was a hard guy to work for. He, he he was a terrible guy to work for. Okay, and I got rid of him for that reason. He was not a people person. Okay, he was not a people person, and he really wasn't a nice boss when he was a boss. Okay, so no. with you, I was not a fan. I was not a fan, so, but that was very early in my career. I corrected it. He was just too tough to work for, much yeah. too tough. And so uh, I, I, I'm i sure you had to work for him because, <laughs> I mean, you know, Rick, maybe you would have uh, had a better coaching career, seriously, if you were working for yeah. a guy that understood, you know, that, uh, no, he was very negative, very negative guy. Well, it's funny you mentioned that too, uh, because I remember I was there for two years and I don't know how many times over those two years they would call and say, we need a right winger, we need a defense, whatever it might be. And of course I had Marty St. Louis there. Wow. And uh, so, I, you know, he was always a forward that I'd say, you got to take him up and they go, no, no, no. Anyway, too but small, small. in two years, in two years, they only took the player that I mentioned once. Every other time they said, I said, yeah, I call this guy up. And the next day I'd come in, they'd be packing someone else's bag. Finally, I said, what the hell did you guys hire me for? Exactly. This is part of my job is I'm with these guys every single day. And, you know, so it was a very difficult uh, situation for me. Right. And Marty, right. we went there after they both got let go. And had meetings and the scouts were like, no, he can't play. I said, gosh, guys, I, Marty St. Louis can play. I said, if you give him the opportunity with two good players, I said, he'll get you 30, 35 goals and assists every year. They said, no way, he can't play. Well, yeah, he can play. He's in the <laughs> Hall of Fame. He won a Stanley Cup, won a scoring championship, won a Hart Trophy. Uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't so bad after all. Yeah, you weren't bad. Yeah, well, Rick, you know, just further that, I, I think the other guy there that you're talking about is Al Coates, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't a favorite of either one of them. I, I don't mind telling you. Uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty brazen when you put a guy in to coach your minor league team and you don't listen to him, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, you don't operate that way. You put a good guy in there and you listen. Who's your best right winger? Who's your best defenseman? Uh, uh, so it, it was a bit disrespectful. And uh, I, I wasn't a fan of either one of those guys. I don't mind telling you. So, Rick, I'm with you. <laughs> well, I, I felt disrespected, to be quite honest with you. And then, yeah. then of course, Craig Button comes in. Craig Button comes in as a general manager and tells me in mid-July that they're going in a different direction. 
And I'm like, and, and, and the funny thing was about that was, um, oh gosh, what's the gentleman's name who was a, a system GM in Buffalo, Carrier, Larry Carrier. Oh yeah. He called me and he said, I, he called me and he said, I want you to apply for the Rochester job. Oh, really? I said, I don't know. I think everything's good here, Larry. I said, you know, they're, they've been good to me. And then I get a phone call mid-July from uh, Craig saying we're going in a different direction. And, uh, and I, I could have been in Rochester because he, he, he kept telling me, just I want you to apply. So in other words, you're going to be that, the coach in Rochester. And I didn't, I didn't take that signal from him. And Anyway, yeah, well, it's 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 unfortunate. It's un very unfortunate. Well, well, we're talking about some crusty guys. One, two names that come up. I think we've had forty-three podcasts, and they've probably come up in forty of them. One of them mentioned a Mike Keenan, and the other one is Al Nagelson. <laughs> and they're never in good uh, in good commentary. Let's put it that way, Jimmy. Oh, Al Nagelson, you've had some dealings with that character over the years. Why don't you give us a couple oh, insights into dealing with him? Yeah. And Rick, by the way, just to give you an idea where Rick's coming from, he was his agent and didn't know Rick who Rick was at a party one night or at a restaurant with all his clients. Didn't know who this guy was. Yeah. In Vancouver, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, everybody has a different relationship with different people. Uh, generally, and Rick would, will know this guy, whenever I had an Eagleson client, it seemed to me I worked more, Rick, with, with Billy Waters, okay? I worked with Bill and with some of the players with Rick Kern. So I really didn't deal out a whole lot. Uh, I did deal with him on Sittler, okay? When I acquired Daryl Sittler, that did not turn out to be a very good for me or Daryl Settler, it, it just didn't work his time in Detroit. So that got a little bit messy, unfortunately. But um, the only other time I really dealt with Al was I negotiated him bringing Team Canada to Joe Louis Arena for, for, for a game in one of the Canada Cups. Uh, so I didn't uh, really see the bad part of Alan Eagleson uh, that unfortunately many people I guess did get affected by it but uh, I didn't as it turns out. Well what I was going to say then let's let's take it from that where I was really going to go with that I guess I should have set up earlier was the 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 power of the agent where it's come from in that day to today like with Donnie Mean as an example and I'll give you another example of that Gary Lehman we had on a couple of weeks ago and he talked about when he wanted out of Calgary, Rick Kern was his agent. He tried to get sure. moved. He tried to get moved. Rick Kern couldn't find a team. He left Rick Kern and went to Don Meehan. Within 24 hours, Don Meehan had three teams for him to go to. And it was Chicago, St. Louis, and Montreal. And Gary picked Chicago because he'd played there like that. And anyway, Meehan said to him, the team that has the best chance to win is Montreal. I suggest you go there. And he ended up going to win the Stanley Cup. But the point being is, where the agents come from in that day to, to this day, the power as a GM, how tough does that make your job? And this is something listeners will not be aware of how powerful those guys have actually become. Well, they have, uh, but I'm gonna surprise you, Mike, they also haven't. And that probably surprises you. Uh, 
Yes, it does. But when I tell you, you you'll, you'll understand. There's a hard salary cap in the National Hockey League. Yes. Hard. $81,500,000. It's going to be there for a minimum of three to four years, okay, because of the economic impact that COVID has had on the revenues of the NHL. So an agent can come in and hardball you, Mike. Mm -hmm. Only got $81 million to sign 23 players. So if you give one player 11 million, okay, it's right to do that, but then you're going to have to sign somebody for a million or 900,000. Yep. So general managers have a tough job. They've got to make the cap work. And I find when I deal with a, a Don Meehan, a Pat Morris, Anton Thun, I mean, there's a lot of good guys out there, like them all. Even they now understand that, that, like, here's what the cap is. Here's what I'm paying Rick Vive. Here's what I'm paying Mike Bossy. Here's what I'm paying this guy. There's only so much to go around. So you see some teams get into cap problems because they sign one player just to too much and then they can't balance their team out around them, you know? So they've lost a little bit of power in that there is a cap on salaries. Isn't that how you guys got Larry Murphy? Oh, sorry. I was going to say, isn't that how you got Larry Murphy in Detroit? <laughs> well, there wasn't a cap then. I can tell you the Larry Murphy story. Overspending in Toronto is more, yeah. Well, irregardless, it was pre-cap, and what happened was uh, a friend of mine, Cliff Fletcher, was running the Maple Leafs. Him and Pat Burns had done a pretty good job, I think, Rick, you'd agree, of kind of reviving yeah. the Maple Leafs. You know, Cliff was a pretty solid guy. Burns, he was a tough taskmaster, but a pretty good coach. And, and Harold was gone. <laughs> and Howard was gone. You're right. So what happened was uh, a new owner had taken over by the name of Steve Stavro. Uh, he wasn't exactly a friend of mine, but that's another story we, we can get into later. Um, he had had to pay more money to get his ownership than he previously thought he would. And he was on cliff pretty good about the Maple Leaf payroll. Uh, he was really on the uh, cliff about the payroll. It's too high, it's too high, it's too high. Apparently, Larry Murphy, a Scarborough boy, had been getting booed by the Maple Leaf fans, had been getting booed. Yep. And, and Cliff felt bad about it because he liked Larry. He liked Larry, he felt bad about it, and he's under pressure from Steve Stavrow to... to, to Cut salary. So trade deadline day, deadline's at 3 o'clock, 2.25, I get a call. Cliff, could you guys use Larry Murphy? Scotty Bowman, the coach, he's sitting in my office. I said, Scotty, you had Larry Murphy in Pittsburgh when you won the cup. Would you like him? Uh, 
yeah, 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 I would, I would, but what's he making? What's he making? I said, don't you worry about that. I'll worry about the money. <laughs> I want to know if you think, if, if, I want to know if you think he can help the hockey club. Yeah, yeah, I just got the guy to put him with. I just got the guy and I, my, my wheels were spinning. I said, he's putting them with Lidstrom. And Rick, I can't play hockey, but I think I might have been able to play with Lidstrom. <laughs> uh, so, so basically, 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 Rick and Mike, we picked up, uh, uh, his contract was 2.4. We picked it up. He had another year to run. And we just picked the contract up. We called it future considerations, but nothing came back to the Maple Leafs. It was a contract dump, and he would play on three Stanley Cups in Detroit. Wow. But they booed him in, in Detroit. He never got booed. So no, no, he did he got booed a lot in Toronto. Yeah. I wanted yeah. to ask you, uh, Jimmy, what you think of wh what difference salary disclosure has made in the National Hockey League. I mean, I think it probably works both ways. Like no one's going to get really overpaid because there's always a comparable on other teams. Yes, a good point, Rick. Um, you know, obviously, as part of management, uh, we preferred that it wasn't in, but times were changing, okay? The right players, agents were becoming more powerful, as, as Mike had said, and uh, basically the players through the NHLPA uh, voted to, to have salary disclosure. Uh, so everybody knew each other made, so there was a lot of comparisons when you were doing negotiations with agents, but again, uh, Rick and Mike at the end of the day, the salary disclosure is actually okay now because you know what you can spend. Like as Steve Eiserman builds the Detroit Hockey Club, he knows that he can only spend $81,500,000. He can't spend a penny more than that. So when he's signing players, Rick and Mike, like he, he, what most managers do is they pull out the payroll. They show the players, they show the agent. This is your piece of the pie, okay? You're, you, you know, this is your, so if you're Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews, I'll pick on them because they're great, great hockey players. They're getting a big slice of the pie. They should, they drive the bus, they drive the bus. But it means then that the fourth line guy and the third line guy, take a little bit less, less. Yeah. you know what I mean Rick so there's good to it there's bad to it but there is a cap and uh, quite frankly Rick it is a good thing for the sport it does save the league it saves us from ourselves uh, because uh, you know we've gotten carried away in the past Detroit's been guilty of it the Leafs have been guilty of it the Rangers have been guilty the Rangers yeah, no, because you know, big market franchises, Rick. You know, you gotta, you gotta sell tickets. You gotta, uh, you know, TV is very important in those markets. And so, you know, many, many times with no cap, you, you, you know, you'd pay more than 
probably you could afford to pay. So those days are over. The, the players know what the cap is. The agent knows what the cap is. And the managers know what the cap is. So it is what it is. And you negotiate within those parameters. Well, Jimmy, I uh, want to go back to... Speaking, oh, speaking hold on, Mike. Yeah, uh, go, go. Speaking yeah. of one of the guys we mentioned before, Al Eagleson. Yeah. He was the head of the Player Association in 80... I believe it was 87 or 88 when I was on the... Uh, right, uh, right. Yeah, he was just... On the committee. He was coming the Player to the, Association yeah. committee. And we were doing a new uh, CBA. And the three things we wanted was free agency was 32 years old. Right, Ridiculous. Right. We wanted 28. We figured we might get 30. But the big one we really wanted was, well, we wanted to get rid of recallable waivers as well. And we wanted salary disclosure. Yes. We didn't get any of them. We didn't get any of them. He went in. And it was funny because looking at the lockouts and everything in, in the, the last 10, 12 years or 20 years, whatever, you always see the guy that's ahead of the, of the uh, player association going in and negotiate and a whole bunch of players going with it. Well, and I'm looking at that going, that's strange because Al just went on his own. <laughs> because Al was like this with the owners and he would go in and, and with Bill Wirtz and all these guys, yeah. and he'd come back and say, no, they're not going to give you any of those. And it's like, what do you mean? Like, we're not even getting one of the three? Right. No, we don't. So, and now, that's what it was back then. Now, at that time, uh, you must have been involved in this. I think he came back uh, to the players with you would get $400,000 if you played, uh, what was it, 400 games or 250,000 if you played 400 games? That was four, 400 games. And if you hadn't played, if you already played 400, you only had to play one more. And he said you would get 250,000 cash at age 55. Yeah. And I said, so I said, well, Al, I said, how are we going to get cash? I said, the government's going to want their piece. Yeah, for sure. He, he, and like Al, he his tactic was to attack you like yes. you're stupid right. and make you look like a fool. Sure. And uh, so then anyway, it all fell apart. We got nothing. And uh, that 250 wasn't 250 at age 55 either. It was a lot less. Was it, Rick? Uh, I mean, you're living proof of that, seriously. Like you would have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay, interesting, interesting. Because I often yeah. wondered about that because it was put into some mutual funds or something, and I didn't yeah. know the heck you could definitively say 250. So you're verifying to me that it, it didn't turn well, out I don't, that way. I, I don't believe they put enough money in at whenever your age was when you got sure. that 400 games in order to get it to that level at 55 with all the things that have happened since then. Yeah. But um, I know when I was 55, mine was like probably about 140 or 150. Really? Really? Tell, and, but tell I do that. know some guys that I don't know whether they took it out and put it somewhere else. Uh, but theirs ended up being, you know, close to 250 at age 55. So yeah. I left mine with uh, whatever company it was that 
that had it, and it never got to that point. So I I see I see yeah I I, I often wondered about that. Well, at times Rick uh, obviously ch changed. Uh, when Alan was disposed, of course, they brought in Bob Goodenow, and uh, things changed in a hurry for the benefit of the players, for sure. So uh, I guess that's a good thing for them, but uh, the old-timers didn't do nearly as well, for sure. Well, speaking of uh, doing well with uh, financials, Jimmy, I would be remiss if we didn't get into I, I <laughs> before. You mentioned before about Steve Stavros and Dean getting along with him. I have to guess that it had something to do with the Maple Leaf Gardens takeover and you and your role you played. But for listeners who aren't aware, Jim actually started to accumulate Maple Leaf Garden shares at a very early age, used Stanley Cup money from the Islanders to take a big position. And being a Bay Street guy 40 years of my life, it's a very interesting story for me. So Jimmy and I have talked about this a lot. Uh, you became one of the largest single sh individual shareholders in Maple Leaf Gardens, along with Harry Ornest. And maybe you want to tell us a little bit about that and about your battles with uh, Stavros over that whole thing. And actually, you helped set the hammer price, actually. Yeah, I did. <laughs> well, it was 1976. I was making a grand total of 16 grand a year scouting for the New York Islanders. But I was single, I didn't have any kids, and uh, I, I saved my money, and I started to buy shares in Maple Leaf Gardens. Oh, uh, Jimmy, let me stop you for one sec. J Rick, this is going to drive you nuts. Give them the reason why you believe in Harold Ballard, and Leaf fans are not going to like this answer, but it's a very good investment answer. All That's right, so... so <laughs> So what happened was uh, I had, I knew that, that Maple Leaf Gardens was a cash cow. I knew that they were profitable because I would always get an annual report from them and it always showed that they were profitable. It also showed that they paid a dividend quarterly to their shareholders. So when I would look at the breakdown of the stock, I would see Harold E. Ballard limited 60% of the shares. And I knew that he was running the joint, okay? And I knew that he wanted profit and he wanted his dividends. So I said, you know, I'm gonna ride his coattail quietly. I'm gonna buy stock because I know that he's gonna pay a dividend. I know that he's gonna run a tight operation. I know he's gonna sell out no matter what kind of team he puts on the ice, it won't matter, he'll be sold out. And so with that, over a period of 20 years, I accumulated 32,750 shares. Over a 20 year period, which actually made me the third largest owner of Maple Leaf Gardens. Now, it's laughable when I say that because Ballard was number one with 60%. Guy by the name of Donald Giffen had 3%. Ernest had three and I had one. So I guess I was the fourth largest shareholder with 1%. So, uh, you know, 
I bought it because I knew Harold Ballard would run it as a business. I knew he would not overpay. <laughs> I know, there you go, Rick. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, knew, I knew he wouldn't get into free agency. Look, Harold was a good guy. He wanted to win a cup, but not take money out of his pocket to do it. Okay. He wasn't going oh, to. I, I know that. <laughs> and you know that for a fact. So, Rick, that was the basis on which I bought. I staked my financial life on Harold, the businessman, and it, it turned out pretty good. Could have turned out a hell of a lot better, but it turned out pretty good. Yeah, it turned out. Oh, it's, oh. it's funny you mentioned that because I heard the story about when the Beatles came over in, was it 63? 64, and, 65, and 66. Well, they were playing at the gardens the first time they came over. And of course, there's a, a gigantic crowd. The building right. is full. Harold turned off the the uh, water, yeah, the water, turned on the yeah. heat, and it was in the middle of the summer. Turned off the water in the building, turned the heat on, and where was everybody going to go to get anything to drink? Was they had to go get the, the concessions? So apparently, I, I don't know how much he made, but I'm guessing even if he made twenty five grand in that extra hour or hour and a half that he kept the heat on. Like the guy wasn't stupid. I, I will give Harold that. He was not a stupid individual when it came to running a business. He just wouldn't spend it to win. That's and, the and Rick, 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 that was the basis in which I invested my life savings in Maple Leaf Gardens. It's it's because I knew he was going to look after my money because he owned 60% of it. So whatever he gave himself in, in the form of profits, I got 1% of it because it was a public company. Well, he tried to buy I your shares. I, I, I got a funny one for you, though, Jimmy. When, after my first contract, we were having trouble getting the second one done in Toronto. And then... So Bill came to me and he said, listen, he said, you know, they're, they're thinking about possibly giving you shares. And I go, shares? What do you mean shares? Now, I wish I had to talk to you before this had, had happened. But anyway, they wanted to give me 5,000 shares wow. instead of paying me more money. And I said, no, I, I want the money. I want to get paid. You know what? I should get paid. Oh. Now, if I had to talk to you beforehand, I would have made a lot more money by taking this there. You, you, you would have, Rick. Yeah. But you're a young guy. You know, you're a young, young guy. You didn't have that type of knowledge back then. You were a hockey yeah. player. And, you know, uh, but yeah, you'd have done very well with it because, you know, the 5,000 shares that they gave you, Wait till I give you the good news. It's split. It's split. Yeah, five to one. One. You'd have had twenty-five thousand shares. You would have. You'd have out over a million bucks. You'd have cashed uh, over a million bucks. Yeah. On well, now, where did the battle come with Stavros? Well, what happened was uh, in 1996. Well, I've got to back up, Mike, because you got to understand the story. So now in about, 
I guess the late 80s, early 90s, Harold's got a girlfriend by the name of Yolanda. Oh, yeah. And I'm well, at we an owner, I, 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 owner's meeting at the Breakers Hotel in Palm Beach, Florida. I know the year, 89. And Harold knew I had stock. He knew I had stock. And uh, so I go into the dining room and he's over to the side with Yolanda, we're having dinner. And I try to bypass them if I can. And Harold yells out, devil animal, get over here. I thought, oh my God. So over I walk, Rick, and he said, uh, who are you with? Who are you having dinner with? I said, well, just by myself, uh, Harold. No, 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 you're going to have dinner with me and your, your land. I said, well, I don't want to bother you. No, no, sit fucking down. I'm buying you dinner. <laughs> down I fucking sit with, with, with your land and Harold. So we're having a nice dinner. And, you know, he's a sociable guy, Rick. You know, we're, we're he's sociable. And so he said... Uh, Ah, I'm getting tired of my kids. I'm getting tired of my kids. I'm going to buy them out. Going to buy them out. Bill and he had a daughter and two sons. I'm going to buy them out. I, I'm, I'm really annoyed with them. I'm really annoyed with my kids. And he said, uh, Jimmy, I want to buy your, I want to buy your stock. I want to buy all your shares. I said, well, Harold, they're for sale. But I said, Harold, the price is $50. The price is 50 bucks a share. You tell me that you'll give me 50 bucks a share for 32,375 shares, they're yours. I'm offering you $42. You're, 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 you know, you're a greedy bastard. You're a greedy bastard. Buy me dinner now, he's calling me a greedy bastard. So he offered me $42 a share right. Now you gotta remember that figure. This is 1989, okay? Now let's get to Stavro. 1996, Harold's long gone. They've been having a, a pissing contest over his will. You might recall who the hell was going to, what it was worth, what debt he had, okay? And along comes Stavro and I get a call one morning in 96 in the Red Wing office of all places, and it's Brian Belmore. Brian Belmore was Stavro's attorney. And I knew him through owner's meetings, Rick, and he said, hi, Jim, it's Brian Belmore from Toronto. How are you? You make a little small talk. He said, I've got good news for you. And I said, uh, what, 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 what's the good news? He said, Mr. Stavro's coming in and he's taking the company private. Uh, he's going to buy up all the shares of Maple Leaf Gardens and take it private. So I go quiet and I said, well, what's the good news? What's the price? And he says, $34. I said, Brian, 34, this is in 96. And Ballard's offering me 42 in 1989. I said, Brian, I want to be respectful here, but that's not good news. Mr. Ballard offered to buy me out seven years ago for $42, and you guys are coming in and offering $34 a share. It ain't happening. I'll fight you in court over this thing. 
Anyways, it did get into a court fight, Rick. It did. And you know what? You know what we got to share through the courts, through the courts, forty nine fifty a share, forty nine fifty a share. So I fifty I, cents shy of what you wanted, fifty <laughs> cents shy of what you wanted, Jimmy. You should have kept it going. <laughs> See, that was terrible. He just wouldn't cave to the fifty. But you know, let me tell you guys, uh, 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 it's it's not such a good story, but it is. So when Belmore made me the offer of $34 a share, I said, Brian, look, I'm the general manager of the Detroit Red Wings. A lot of people really are unhappy with the fact that I own a small piece of another team. I said, there's a lot of unhappy people, especially John Ziegler, president of the NHL. But I said, it's a public company. I bought it on the public exchange. Why don't you go to Mr. Stavro and, and ask him to leave me in? Ask him to leave me in, and I'll hold the 1%, and I won't cause any trouble. I'm running the Detroit Red Wings. Just pay me the dividend that Ballard paid and leave me in for 1%. Can't do it. Can't do it. Well, Rick, I'll be quick here. When I sold, I got a million six. That was my return on an investment of about $300,000. Over 20 years, I turned it into a million six. Sounds good, sounds good. If they'd left me in, Rick, I hope you're sitting down, I see you are. If they'd let me in, if they'd left me in, seriously, Mike knows this, and I had 1% of MLSC today, I'd be worth $40 million, $40 million. So you can see why I don't like Steve Stavro. <laughs> True story. Oh, uh, now I'm thinking, well, True story. maybe I should have taken those 5,000 shares. Yeah, you should have. <laughs> you should have, Rick, but however. Well, Jimmy, we've taken a lot of your time here and uh, listen, we could go on for hours talking to you as we normally do. Uh, we just about anything to wrap up before we let uh, Jimmy get back. He's got his Red Wings probably to watch tonight. I know the Leafs yeah. have been watching. Yeah. Tonight also. But uh, yeah. anyway. Okay. So so what's next with the Red, for the Red Wings, Jimmy? I mean, where do you go from here, from the bottom? Long hole. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Rick, uh, it, it's very obvious to everybody that we're in a rebuild. It's a long rebuild. Uh, uh, Rick, because the league now is a very, very different league to operate in than what I operated in with the Islanders in a 16-team league. Then I went to Detroit. It was 21. What Steve Eiserman has taken over is a team that's in a 32-team league. Last year, we finished dead last, rightfully so. We had the worst team in the league. It was a team that was devoid of talent. And we're just being honest with our fans that we're gonna nip away. We're gonna to try to rebuild the thing. We are trying to do it. Rick, we've made a little bit of progress this year, okay? They're actually, when I look at the standings, four teams under us. Last year, there was nobody under us. This year, we've passed four teams. So a little bit of progress, but here's the, here's the scary part 
today, Rick, about building a team. So when you're dead last, 16 teams make the playoffs, Rick, and 16 don't make it. 16 don't make it. So the job we have starting last year is how do we get better than 16 teams? It's pretty scary, Rick. It's it's a tough, yeah. tough, tough job. And so Steve uh, Eiserman has taken that over and he's made some progress. The progress, of course, is going to be slow. And uh, But we've got patient ownership. They understand. And our fans have been very good. And maybe our fans have been good, Rick, because we've leveled with them. Just as I'm talking to you about rebuild, we're telling them the same thing. We're not BSing them that a year from now, we're suddenly going to be real good. It's a, it's a slow process, Rick, and it involves getting some real good players, obviously. Well, Stevie did it in Tampa. I'm pretty sure he can turn it around and enjoy it. I don't think he'll have any. He seems like a pretty smart guy when it comes to building a team, what he needs what he uh, to win. I, I'm pretty sure he'll have that done probably within the next uh, – I'll give him seven years. Well, and they'll uh, have a Stanley Cup. Well, that would be phenomenal if, 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 if in fact, that he could do that. I'm behind him, Rick. I'm trying to help him any way I can. If we can do that, that would be really terrific. You understand you're a hockey guy. You know it's not going to be quick. You know that. And, oh, no. Uh, no. Yeah, it no. can't be. It can't be. Right. No. Well, we just don't want, to get better than the, we don't want you getting better than the Leafs too fast, okay? So just give us a chance to win one first. Well, well I, would, I would say this to you, Mike. I, I would say this to you, you know, and I've told you this personally. I love the Maple Leafs. They have a terrific team now. Uh, when you and I were together last week, I, I gave you the name of six teams that could win the Stanley Cup. Yes, you did. I won't six, but one of them was the Maple Leafs. It, it is not impossible when you have players like Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, Morgan Riley, okay, if a couple of other guys can step it up in goal, Hyman gets healthy, they have a chance. They're a young, exciting team. Uh, they're they're well, they in the got Nick, Nick Felino too. Yeah, Nick Felino now. There you go. There you. Go. They've done a good job. They've done a good job, yeah. and they have. So, so uh, you know, Leaf fans should feel good. They should feel good. They're an exciting young team, and uh, to have players like Marner and Matthews, terrific, terrific young young man, terrific. Well, Jimmy, we just, uh, you know, we, we'll, we'll take your words and hope it comes, it comes through in the next couple of years, hopefully. And anyway, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure talking, and we'll be talking to you soon. Well, thanks, Mike, and good getting to see you again, Rick. Good talking to you, bud. Jimmy, well, very nice to see you. I'm glad you're uh, doing well, and uh, get, get Stevie and those uh, Red Wings going so we there when you go. All this stuff goes away. This pandemic, we'll have a rivalry with them again. Yeah, well, that would that would be fun. It was a great rivalry. Obviously, Detroit and Toronto, you know, was always very 
very interesting, people going up and down the 401, and of course us being on the Canadian border. So many Maple Leaf fans make their way into Detroit. They've always done that, and it's, uh, it's a pretty good rivalry, but uh, the Leafs uh, are, are way ahead of us in terms of talent, and uh, it's their time now, so I wish them the best. Okay, Jimmy, well, thanks again, Jimmy, and again, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. Bye, guys. Well, it's good. The hockey gods looking after us again. Another great guest. Uh, just could talk to him all. I didn't get, get through half the stuff. I had notes I'd written down here to speak to him about. Man, there's so much. And he just well, full of stories. I mean, he, he's unbelievable. Like, uh, I got to tell you, his memory is pretty darn good. I, uh, I wouldn't remember something from 1989 or something like that. Like, but he, he had all the details and yeah. But he was a smart, he's a very smart hockey man. I mean, he did a great job with the Islanders, with the Red Wings. I mean, what, what a great story he is, really, as, as a person becoming what he was and, and doing what he did and winning all those Stanley Cups. I, I think it's fantastic. And again, I still have zero. <laughs> all right. I wanted to get into him about the scouting and actually breaking down the scouting about what makes a good scout, what to look for, what, you know, the difference between like somebody like me looking at a player or a, a pro like himself or, you know, talking about signing guys like Shanahan Hall and all, all those guys he brought in at the end, as opposed to trying to sign those guys at the beginning and just all the different things he went through and some of the trades and uh, we'll get him back on again somewhere down the road and go through that kind of stuff. But I just love to get in a little deeper dive into the actual what really they look for in players and stuff. Yeah, and I think, uh, well, I think one of the answers he's going to tell you is that, you know, you're, you're projecting what this player is going to be, you know, when he's 22 or 23 years old, when he's 18. And that's a tough thing to do. It's pretty tough to say in four years or five years, this guy's going to be star or whatever the case might be. So a lot goes into it. There's uh, some are no doubt, you know, you look at them like a Connor McDavid, a Matthews and guys like that. Yeah. And you go, I mean, that's a no brainer. You know, he's going to be a superstar. The other guys, a little more difficult. Well, I mean, how do how many guys do we have on this show that when they start off as an 18 year old, they're, Five foot ten, they weigh 150, 160 pounds. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So you just never know. I mean, you know, you're. I think you. I, I would have to say the top twelve picks in the draft are pretty much no brainers. Uh, the next rest of the first round have a real good chance, and then I think after that, I think it's kind of like throwing a dart at a dartboard and hoping you hit the right number. Oh, you're right. I mean, well, Berkey said that. I mean, the first dozen, the work is all done for you by every other scout and every central scouting and every analyst <clears throat> in the business can analyze, the, does all the work for you. It's after that where the real stuff gets deep dive for the yeah. managers and they really got to start digging deep. So anyway, we want to uh, thank Jimmy for joining us again today. Another exciting bunch of stuff he passed along to us i uh, can't wait for to hear what the listeners have to say about all of that uh we're working on our very guests. interesting very yeah. very interesting mike the stuff that he told us today i i was 
I, I was amazed. That's uh, some great, great stuff. And I was playing through that time. <laughs> and I didn't know what was going on. I did know about John O'Grodnick, though. And I, I, I figured I'd throw that in there to see if it was true or not. Because somebody uh, that played on the team, I think, with them told me that. And uh, sure enough, I was right. Well, Jimmy actually told me that story before. And one of the problems he had with Illich doing that was the fact that some of the veterans, you're going up and paying these kids and giving them this money. You're like, you, you got to keep things kind of in balance. You're going to have a very disruptive, you, you're doing good, but you're doing bad at the same time, making my life miserable because these guys are going to come banging on my door. Like they're giving some kid one good year and he's making more, like two times more than I am and you're bonusing him. And I've been in the league yeah. for 10 years and done. So there was all that aspect to it too that we'll get into when we get Jimmy back on again. So anyway, we do another great show, we think from uh, our guest. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you think. You can reach us on YouTube. Look for Rick on the Rick Vive on his website. All the podcasts are there, the Ultimate Leafs fan, all our podcasts are there on all the podcast networks. Looking forward to speaking to you guys soon next week. Everybody have a great week until the next time.